0: Imagine for one moment with me that you are a master creator and as you walk through the walls or the halls of your house, you see an empty space and it bothers you and in your mind, you see the perfect something that will complete that empty space that exists there within your house. It's the perfect something that you want and you see it. It's something that would be useful. It's something that would be practical, that serves a purpose. It's something that would be pleasing to the eye. And of course, it would be something that expresses who you are accurately. The problem is that something doesn't really exist. It's not something that you've ever seen before, it's not something that you can just go to the store and buy, it's not something that your neighbor has that you, you think of, it's, it's, it's indescribable, but you know what you want and you know what it is, but you'll have to make it yourself. And so the process begins. It starts with a purpose and a plan. You know what you want and you know where you want it. And so there's a scope of work that is outlined and ordained because you're going to create something. After that, it will go to objectives and goals, the second stage. Not what will it be, but now how will you go about creating it? What materials will you need? What tools will you have to use? And how much time will it take to make the thing that you want? And then finally, stage three will be the means and methods. Do you, as a master creator, possess the skills and the ability to turn the raw substance into the something that you see in the place where it belongs in the empty space within your house? Now, in our text, the master creator is almighty God. And the void, the need that he sees as he walks not through his house but through his nation is that there's a need for a king. So, not just any king is going to do. He can't just go and employ a king that's already a king in another nation because that's not the kind of king that God wants. It it can't be someone who can be bought or just found. That king that God wants doesn't already exist. And, and, And so... It has to be the right king, and therefore, he's going to have to be created. He's to represent God. And so this king has to be selfless. He has to have the heart of a servant. He also has to be wise and of an understanding nature. He's going to be dealing with people, with issues, with difficult things. He's got to be relatable. He must have the authority of royalty, but also the sensitivity of a common citizen. He's got to be strong. He has to have the ability to stand up against a world that opposes and abhors the people that he'll be leading. He'll have to be patient. We're talking about the Israelites here, the people of God. God's seen what happened with Moses and with others throughout the history. He'll have to be patient. But most of all, he'll have to reflect and express who God is. He'll be leading the people of God, And he wants his people to know him, so he'll have to reflect him. So God is going to shape a man. And in the same way that a master craftsman has a method, so also God does. He begins with a purpose and a plan. He knows what he wants, a king, and he knows where it belongs above his people. Then it goes on to the objectives and the goals. Not what he's going to make, but how is he going to do it? What materials is God going to use as he creates and makes this king? Well, the king will be a man And the materials that God chooses to use are a man that already exists. He likes to create something from nothing. And so he'll take the man that is and he'll use that man in his raw substance to become what God wants him to be. Well, what tools will he use in this process? The tools of God will be pain, poverty, adversity, uncertainty, confusion. All of the things that to us speak of discomfort, pain, you know, things that we would avoid. God's going to employ those things to shape and make this king that he wants. And how much time will it take? Well, it's going to take more than a few days. It's going to take more than a month and more than a year. It's going to take some time for God to do this. But finally, the means and the methods, does God have the skills and the ability to turn a raw and natural David into the kind of king that will rightly reflect and represent the God of the nation that he will be leading. The next 16 chapters of 1 Samuel depict and demonstrate the process of God in shaping and making this man David so that he can be the kind of king that God wants him to be. Now let me make a statement here that I think will apply to all of us. If you were to take a poll amongst the general span of Christendom, You were to ask, who are the top five most influential Bible characters in your life? I'm convinced that almost all of us, somewhere in the top five, would have the name David written down. Why? Why is David amongst the top five in most Christians' lists of people that they would like to emulate and be like? Well, first of all, because David is a success story. He went from the shepherd place, from being a shepherd to being a king. That's the deep down desire of us all, that we would be exalted, that we would find the place where we can most magnify God and bring glory to him in the world, and that we would end up there. And David did. And so we're inspired by him. Also, because David was flawed and imperfect. Though he was a hero, he had obvious imperfections, but God still used him. And that gives us hope we can relate, because we're flawed and imperfect. I think thirdly, it's because we can feel his frustration. We see the suffering, the difficulty that David endured. We cry the same tears. Many of us spend time in our own caves of Adullam. And we can feel the frustration that David had. But here's really why we like David, why we can relate to him. Because right now, you and I, we are the perfect something for an empty space in God's house, within God's kingdom. When God looks at your life, he sees something that you can do and be, that no one else can do and be, and he wants to create you to be that perfect something that he sees in his mind. And, just like God worked in David, using his means, his plans, building him and making him what he would become, God does the same types of things in our lives. So as we look at David and understand how God took him from what he was to what he could become, we in our own lives say, yes, Lord, do those same things in me because we want to ultimately become what you have uh, for us in store. And so David's life for you and I, as we study it, gives answers to the why and what for concerning the things that we go through. Why do we suffer? Why do we go through trials, temptations? Why is there uncertainty and confusion within our lives? We see the answer for a lot of that in David as we um, desire to be what God uh, is making us to be. Now, the common denominator in all of what takes place within David and within us is one word. It's the word change. God is on a quest to change us from what we were in our flesh prior to our knowing him to what he is ultimately seeking to make us. If there's no change within our lives, then we end up like King Saul. We saw him in our study last week. He self-destructed. He was put into that place of prominence and the position that God had, but he wasn't properly prepared for it, and thus he wasn't able to handle the weight that it brought, and it caused him to fall under the weight of that. God wouldn't have that for any of us. And so there's a time of preparation. There's something that he's doing within us. Now, the universal starting point for you and me as it relates to our walk with God and how he's working in us. Our starting point is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We give our lives to Christ, we belong to him. And at that time, the Bible says that God puts his Holy Spirit within our lives, that seed of salvation that ultimately grows into the nature and the person of Christ. So what does that mean? It means this. It means that we are destined or set up for success. God has planted the seed of success within us, And as long as we stay in the game and we endure God's seasons as he brings us through and reshapes us and makes us more like Christ, we will ultimately become what God has planned for us. And so we get into our text and we look at David and we study the things that God did. Why and how did God shape him and make him what he was going to be that we might also understand the same thing for us? We pick up in chapter 16. Now, where we left off in chapter 15, the prophet Samuel was stripping the first King Saul of his anointing over the throne or for the throne over the people of God. Samuel said the worst and harshest words that Samuel would ever want to hear. He said that God has torn the kingdom from you and he's given it to someone else, a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And I can imagine that those words of Samuel burned into Saul's soul like hot acid. That was the one thing that he was fighting to hold on to the most. And yet God was taking the kingdom away from him. Well, when we get into chapter 16 now, Samuel, the prophet, is sent to the someone better than Saul that was spoken of back in the prior chapter. So Samuel is told as the chapter opens up to go to Bethlehem And to fill his horn with oil because God had found one of the sons of Jesse, a man who would rightly reflect him, a man after his own heart that he would replace Saul with in the kingdom. Well, Samuel argues with God and he says, I don't want to go. If Saul finds out that I'm going on this mission, he'll inquire why. He'll find out and he'll have me killed. And so God says, well, if anyone asks, just say that there's a sacrifice there and invite the sons of Jesse. Don't worry, I'll cover you. We'll work it out. And so Samuel goes down to Bethlehem and he brings his horn of oil and he calls a sacrifice together and he invites Jesse and his sons to come to the feast. And so Jesse brings his seven oldest sons with him. And when Samuel lays eyes on the oldest one, a man by the name of Eliab, he thinks to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He was tall. He was of a good countenance. He looked a lot like Saul. But God quickly rebuked Samuel and he said, don't look on his countenance or on his outward appearance. I've refused him for God does not see like man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart and I've refused him. Well, the second son comes and then the third and all seven of Jesse's oldest sons pass before Samuel. And one by one, God refuses. He says, nope, 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 nope. And Samuel's confused, thinking that's the whole family. And he looks at Jesse and he says, are these all your children? And Jesse says, well, there remains yet the youngest, the runt. And he's out there. He's keeping the sheep. And the Bible says that he was ruddy, that he was a good-looking guy, but he was kind of rough around the edges. And so, uh, it, Jesse was, you know, even to the point where he thought, Samuel wouldn't even be interested in this young man. Called him a strapling. And so Jesse sends for him. He brings him in. Samuel says, we're going to wait till he gets here. But when he sees David, the Spirit of God speaks to Samuel and says, this is the one. And it says that Samuel poured the horn of oil upon David right there and anointed him right in front of all of his brothers and the people of the town. But there's an interesting thing that's often overlooked. And that's this, is that Samuel did not tell David the reason for the anointing. Now, you might say, well, that goes without saying. I mean, why else would he do it? Well, listen, think about it for one moment. If he did tell David the reason for that anointing, David would immediately be killed. Because word would spread from that public hearing in Bethlehem quickly back to Saul, where he was. And just as Herod, that crazed king, sought to kill Jesus when he found out there was a threat to his throne, we see the same thing would happen with Saul. David didn't know about it. In fact, we find out later that David was the last one to realize what the specific nature of that call was. It was seen by many others prior to David realizing it for himself. Well, Samuel leaves, David goes right back into the field keeping his father's sheep. But it says that the Spirit of God departed from Saul and an evil spirit sent by the Lord tormented Saul at that point. And so great was the insanity that Saul was feeling that he is told by one of his servants to send for a musician, someone that could soothe the pain that he was feeling in the midst of the suffering and the things that he was going through. And then another servant comes in and says, hey, I know someone. There's a young man, a son of Jesse in Bethlehem. He's a good-looking fellow. And he's a good player of the instrument. And he's full of wisdom. And he's a mighty man of valor, a man of war. And he's prudent in matters. Bring him into the palace. He'd make a great place on your cabinet, King Saul, and he'll be able to help you. And so Saul sends messengers to Bethlehem, to Jesse. David is brought into the palace, and he's given a position as an intern, literally a musician and a counselor for King Saul. And the Bible says that when David played, the spirit would depart from Saul, and he would feel a little bit of relief from what it was that he Uh, was experiencing. And the chapter ends there. Well, what are the lessons or the applications that we get from this chapter? What does God want us to see? I think it's this. It's that verse in verse seven, that statement that Samuel or God spoke to Samuel and he said that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this encourages me greatly because I am not a person whose outward appearance is by any stretch impressive. And Really, I don't think any of us would say that we are, you know, that that we have the outward characteristics of anything that will ever be great. But the Bible doesn't teach that it's the outward things of us that make us useful or valuable or an asset to God. He looks upon what's in the heart. But you say, well, that doesn't really encourage me that much either because lately I've kind of seen what's in my heart and I'm far from anything that God would look at and say, well, he's got a heart like mine. Well, wait a minute. Neither did David. You say, wait a minute. Yes, he did. God said David had a heart like his. Oh, really? Well, then why wasn't David immediately put into the throne? See, when God looked at David and saw his heart, he didn't see a heart that was complete and perfect and ready for the task. What he saw was a heart that was willing and ready for God to do in it what God wanted to do with it and in it. That's what God was looking for. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone whose heart is perfect towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. What does it mean to have a heart that's perfect towards God? Obviously, the Bible says that we're all flawed. The Bible says that in us, there dwells no good thing. So a perfect heart before God doesn't exist in that context of, ooh, I'm perfect, God sees me and he's happy. No, a perfect heart before God is a heart that is willing to let God do whatever God wants to do within our lives to make us who we're supposed to be. And when God finds a heart that's willing to let him do whatever needs to be done in us to make us effective and fruitful for his name and bring him glory, there's no limit to what he can do with that heart. Now, the good news is that means that all of us can qualify. There's not one person here that can't be used greatly by God because our heart isn't yielded. But there is bad news that goes along with that good news. The bad news is that when God looked at a whole nation of those that claimed to follow him, he only found one person like that. And I truly believe that it's a lot more rare than we think for someone to actually have a heart that is inclined to let God do whatever he wants to do within it. If I took a poll and said, raise your hand if your heart is completely surrendered to God, I think there would be a lot of hands in here that would go up. I know that my hand would go up, not because it necessarily is, but because I want it to be. And if I said, do you want your heart to be completely for God, I know that a million hands would go up in here. But I think oftentimes when we say those words or when we think that way, we mean it, but we mean it within the framework that we've built that makes up our own life. God, I'm letting you do whatever you want as long as what that is exists within the framework of what I've constructed my life to be. As long as you don't interrupt my career, as long as you don't interrupt my plans, as long as you don't step on the things that I've carefully placed in my life that I want here, God, I'm willing to do anything that you want to do. And God loves you just the way you are, but he overlooks that person and he looks for someone who says, God, whatever you've got to do. If you want to mess with my schedule, God, it's yours. If you want to mess with my plans and my career path, God, it's yours. God, if you want to change my fear and make me willing to speak about you to others, even though as awkward as that might seem, God, I'm willing to do anything that you would work in my heart to do. There's nothing, God, that I will not do and step out in faith for you to do. When God sees that heart, he says, there is no limit as to what I can do with that person. Your outward limitations do not limit God when your heart is inclined to be completely molded and shaped and formed by him. That's what God wants to do within our lives. And so that's the lesson of chapter 16. We move into chapter 17 and we come to one of the longest chapters in Samuel and one of the most famous chapters in the whole Bible. It's David and Goliath. And if you don't know the story of David and Goliath, I would uh, suggest that you go to the children's section of any bookstore... Or just go look at the walls of any Sunday school classroom and you'll get the idea of the story of David and Goliath. We're told that there was war with the Philistines. The camp of Israel was on one mountain, the camp of the Philistines was on the other and there was a great valley between them. And every day there was a champion of the Philistines that was somewhere between 9 and 11 feet tall. You can use the ceiling height in this room as a gauge and framework for that. The ceiling height in here is somewhere around 11 feet. So he would be coming within a a span of the ceiling. He certainly could change these ceiling tiles without a ladder. It tells us that his coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. That's like carrying around three five-gallon buckets of paint. And that's just your coat. That's what you wear not including his spear or his shield or any other part of his armor. This was a big guy. And every day, this man Goliath would come and he would taunt the armies of Israel and he would defy the God that they served and he would challenge any one of them to come and fight with him. And This was the contract that he was willing to make. That if any one of you can defeat me, then me and our people, we will be your servants. We'll surrender and you'll have access to our territory. We'll be yours. But... If I defeat you, then you will be our servants and we're going to invade your land. Well, the Bible says for 40 days, every day, Goliath came out and he gave this challenge and that all of the servants of Saul were afraid and none of them would go out and take Goliath at his challenge. But then it switches scenes and we go back to Bethlehem and we see David. He's out in the field keeping his father's sheep. And his father comes to him one day and he says, David, I've got something for you to do. I want you to take this wine, this cheese these resources, and I want you to go see your three older brothers who are in the army with Saul. I want you to see how they're doing and bring me word again. Give this to their captain and and salute the soldiers that are around them and just see how things are and bring word to me again. And so David takes the stuff and he goes into the battle. And as he's arriving, it just so happens that it's the time of day that Goliath comes out into the valley and he gives his daily challenge to the people of Israel. Well, David hears it, and something stirs within him. It isn't Goliath. It isn't the challenge. It isn't his size. It's none of that that bothers him. What bothers him is that he's defying the God of the armies of Israel. He, He doesn't care what Goliath is saying or his chant or even his challenge. It's who does he think he is that he can defy the armies of the living God? Well, he hears word in the camp as all this is going on that the man who defeats Goliath will be enriched with much riches, that he'll be given the king's daughter as a wife, and his father's house will become tax-free in Israel. David is interested. His ears are perked. His interest is piqued. And so he asks some more, and his brothers catch on to what's going on, and they rebuke him. They say, we understand your pride and the naughtiness of your heart. What are you doing? You just came here to see the battle. And David hushes them. And he says, hey, isn't there a cause? And he continues his inquiry about what's going on. They bring David to Saul, and David boldly declares before a king who's head and shoulders higher than anyone else in Israel. He says, I'm going to go fight this Philistine. And the king kind of laughs it off, and he says, you're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since the time of his youth. You don't stand a chance, young man. And David confidently looked King Saul in the eye, and he said, no, not so. He said, but I was watching my father's sheep and a lion and a bear both came. And tried to steal one of the sheep from my father's flock. And I delivered the sheep from both the lion and the bear. And when they rose up against me, I grabbed them by the beard and I slew them. And furthermore, God was with me then, but God will be with me now because he's defying the armies of the living God. I will fight him. And Saul, not able to answer the confidence and boldness of this young David, this lion-hearted man, he says, fine, go fight him. But in Saul-like fashion, he says, why don't you wear my armor? I want you to picture that for a minute. David's so short, so small, that Samuel, you know, or, or, or his father didn't even bring him in. And Saul, who's head and shoulders above the rest. And now David's supposed to wear his armor and carry his sword. I think Saul was just setting up so that if David won, he could take the glory. You know, that was the nature and the character of Saul. David puts on Saul's armor and he says, this ain't for me. I can't use this stuff. I haven't tested it. And he takes his shepherd's staff. And he takes his sling and he takes five smooth stones. And he moves out and he goes into the battlefield to go up against Goliath. And when Goliath sees him, Goliath begins to chide him and rebuke him and say, Who is this? What am I, a dog? That you would send out a little child to fight me? What is this, an insult, a game? And David gives it right back to him and he says, You've defied and insulted the armies of the living God and God's going to take you down. And Goliath charged David. David charges Goliath. He puts a stone in his sling he swings it around and the stone sinks directly into Goliath's forehead David quickly stands atop draws Goliath's own sword and then takes off his head it's an astounding victory that David has that day as he faces the giant and fights him in the name of the Lord such an adrenaline rush that David had that he takes the head of Goliath and he carries it all the way to Jerusalem we're told about 25 miles from Gath (laughs) can you imagine that how much did that head weigh a little more than eight pounds i think he carries it back abner the general in saul's army is sent to bring david to saul and david comes to saul still carrying that head in his hand probably so excited from the victory that his knuckles white he can't even let go of it yet he puts the armor in his own tent and saul says who the heck are you i'm paraphrasing there but that's Essentially what Saul asked and he's told that he's the son of Jesse and David lands a full-time gig now in the palace and the chapter closes right there. Well, what are the things that are happening? What is God doing in this chapter? Things that we can also apply to our own lives as we consider. Number one is this, is that when you serve God, God's plan will find you. See, David was anointed by Samuel in the last chapter. Samuel said, God's got a plan. There's something he's going to do with your life. There's a purpose for you. You exist for a reason, and God's got his hand on you. And David didn't say, okay, well, what do I do now? Do I go to to Bible college? Do I study with you, Samuel? Do I, I mean, where do I go? What, What do I do next? No, no, no. David went right back into the field and kept watching his father's flock, the same thing that he had done the day before. That's what he did the next day and the next day and the next day. And it went on like that until he was called into the palace for a season, but then sent back home to watch the sheep. And then his father came to him on a day and said, hey, go see how your brothers are doing. And from there, the plan of God began to unfold as this fight with Goliath catapulted David onto the national scene. Do you understand? What's the point? The point is this. Is that God has a plan for each one of our lives. But that plan isn't going to be written on the wall in your bedroom that while you're laying there, God's going to say, well, this is just what you do next. It's going to unfold in a very natural way as you just continually surrender and give your life to God day by day. You're going to go to work the next day and raise your family and continue doing the things that you're doing. And as you do it, God's going to let his plan begin to unfold within your life. That's what happens for David, and it's the same thing that God does for us. How do we find God's plan? I don't know. There's one way, though. Surrender to God day by day and then see what happens. And he'll bring you there. Number two is that today's victory equals tomorrow's confidence. Or to say it another way, the experiences of our past play a part in our future. Why could David confidently look King Saul in the eye and say, this Philistine is going to fall by my hand before the living God? Because he had seen God give him victory in his life in a much smaller thing in a historical moment. Of his existence. It was just a lion and a bear. And, and see, David could have excused it. He could have said, Ah, it's one sheep amongst however many. It's a lion. I'm not going to take my life and put it in my hands just to save one sheep from the mouth of a lion or from a bear. But David saw those challenges as an opportunity to bring glory to God and gain experience for himself in seeing God deliver him in a situation of just being faithful. See, the same thing happens for us. Sometimes we think that the challenges and the difficulties of our daily lives are meaningless. Sometimes we even shy away from them. We say, I don't really want to deal with this right now. I'm just going to let this go, let this slide. Don't do that. Because the little victories that God gives you in the small things are setting you up for the big victories that you're going to have later on in life, and they're actually giving you the confidence to go after those things boldly knowing that God's going to give you deliverance. I remember the first time I was ever asked to speak in front of people as a Christian. I was scared to death. I was young in the Lord and it would have been much easier just to say no. I memorized every word that I was going to say. I had to drive five and a half hours to the place where I was going to speak it and every fiber of the seats in my car got saved on that journey. (laughs) because of the amount of times I went through, uh, you you know, going through that message over and so scared, shaking, getting ready to go up. But as soon as I got up in front of those people, it was at a college and it was on a seeker night when they were to invite their friends. The peace of God came over me and I was able to give that message with a light heart and with humor and, and with great effect that day. And I was so blessed getting down from that time. And what happened is that the next time I was asked to speak and to share, there wasn't even a doubt in my mind of, of as to how I would respond to it. It was, yeah, absolutely I will. But the reason for that confidence wasn't because of me, but it was because of how I'd experienced the power of God in just doing something that was challenging a time before. The same thing is true for all of us. Embrace the challenges that God places before you because they're setting you up, perhaps, for what he has for your tomorrow. Number three is this, that you don't need Saul's armor. What is Saul's armor for you and me? Saul's armor is the attitude, the mindset that you need what works for someone else. That in order for you to succeed within your life, you have to do things the way someone else does it or the way someone else did it. That you need a particular form of education. Or that you need to read the same kind of books. Or that you need the same tools. Or you need to look like them. Or you need to try on their personality So that you can succeed in something that's similar to what they've done. You don't need to do those things. God has made only one you. If God wanted two of someone else, he would have made two of them and none of you. But he didn't. He made you and you're the only one that can express and bring God glory in the way that you were made to do. So therefore, you don't need Saul's armor. Goliath made fun of David that he came out with a staff in his hand. You came to fight me with a shepherd's staff? David said, yeah. Because this is, what, this is what's familiar to me. This is what I do. This is what I am. I'm a shepherd. And God will use what I am and who I am to defeat you because he's called me to defeat you. And so he's going to use what he's given me to do it. And that's the way God works within our lives. He's made you, you. You don't have to be someone else. And you don't need the tools that someone else has. What you need is God. And if you have God, you've got everything. And you'll be able to do what God's called you to do. Number four, finally, is that nothing is impossible for us when we live for the glory of God. When your motive and your aim is to bring God glory, there is nothing you can't do. There is no gift he won't give you. There's no opportunity he won't open for you. There is no fruit he won't bear within your life if your motive is to bring him glory. Well, We come to chapter 18, and I call this chapter David's Early Rise to Greatness. David's internship now becomes a full-time gig. David becomes close companions with Jonathan, whom we met last week, the son of Saul. Jonathan loved David so much that he gave David his robe, his clothes, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And David was exalted to a place of counselor and ambassador sent forth on the the errands uh, of the king. And he was set over the men of war, and the Bible says that he was accepted in their sight. Are there any males here tonight that are 20 or 21 years old by show of hand? Any 20, 21-year-old males? Stand up. If you're 20, 21 years old, stand up. Even if you're 22, stand up. Just, I, just for, for a reason. There's a reason. for I'm not going to embarrass you beyond making you stand. But I want you to look at what we're dealing with here because this is David at this life. Look at these guys. This is David, okay? <laughs> okay, I just want you to understand because this is, this is and you guys can sit, this is an incredible privilege and opportunity For someone of this age to be put in this kind of a position and to have the respect that he had. David had become a folk hero in Israel because of the victory that was given to him through Goliath. And he's got an incredible position now in the palace because of it. Not only is he accepted in the sight of the men of war, but as he would go out and fight the Lord's battles, upon return, the song of the women in Israel would be, and you know the song, that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. He was successful, he was being glorified, he was being extolled, and he was doing it with the right heart and the right attitude. He was acting with wisdom. Three times in this chapter it says that David behaved himself wisely. But in that exaltation, he catches the crooked gaze of a jealous king. King Saul doesn't like the song that the women are singing. He doesn't like the the fame and the acclaim that David is gaining at this season and in this time of his life. And the Bible says that he began to watch him. And he even in this chapter for the first time throws a spear at David, hoping perhaps to pin him to the wall. But it says that David escaped from his sight, behaved very wisely, and that the people loved him because he went out and he came in among them. Well, after Saul dislikes David, he... Demotes him from his place of ambassador and counselor, and he makes him a captain over a thousand, which is still a very high-ranking position. Uh, and he was loved in that position and exalted in it. And, and then Saul marries, I'm sorry, David marries one of Saul's daughters. He's promised Miriab the oldest, but then there's kind of a you know shuffle and renegotiation. Uh, at the last minute, Miriab goes to someone else. David gets Michal, which turns out to kind of be the shrew. Uh, if you would, um, kind of whatever. But but David is still blessed. He makes an agreement with Saul. A hundred Philistines is the dowry. You kill a hundred Philistines, you can have my wife. David says, I'll double it. And he goes out, he gets 200 Philistines. The number is put before Saul. Saul gives him his daughter, and Saul feels even more trapped. And it says that he became David's enemy continually, but at the end of the chapter, it says that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his reputation was rock solid. And that's the man that we're dealing with. This is David's early rise to greatness. Now, um, as far as application goes for this chapter, I have a sentence uh, that, that applies, and here it is. Caterpillars grow fast, but they can't fly. And that's exactly what's happening in this young man David's life at this moment. If you were going to give this chapter a title, you could call it Life is Good, Don't Blink. (laughs) Because that's the season that David's in. And here's the picture that I have in my mind uh, of David's life at this time. Have you ever been to the circus and seen a human cannonball? That, you know, you're watching and you watch this man with a spiky helmet wave at the at audience, and then he disappears into the cylinder of this long, huge cannon. And then they light the fuse, and there's a huge explosion. And all of a sudden, a man comes flying out of the cylinder through the air, launching to the other side, and then he safely flips into a big safety net, and the whole crowd goes, ooh, ah. Well, listen a shot out of a human cannonball has three stages. Number one is an explosive ascension. That's David in this chapter. Then number two is magnificent views. And then number three is a sudden realization. (laughs) Whoa, this is phenomenal. Look at where I'm at. This is awesome. I'm, I'm, whoa, whoa, you know. And, And that's exactly what's about to happen within David's life. Another analogy, illustration that I can give you that's perhaps a little bit more biblical, I get it from the life cycle of a grain of wheat. And I put this up here on purpose. This isn't feng shui. Um, You know, this big old, uh, oh, I broke it. Okay, that's David too. We'll get to that one in a minute. But the life cycle of a a stalk of wheat, it, it was one of Jesus' favorite illustrations. He used it at least four times in the New Testament to teach. And what happens with a stalk of wheat is that, first of all, a seed is planted, but then it sprouts and it begins to grow. And the growth happens very, very quickly. It, it, you watch the thing go up, and the thing, when, it, when it's growing, it's like this. It's stout, it's strong, it's attractive. It flows in the wind, it's feeling the pleasure of the summer air. It's drinking from the soil beneath, and life is good. But as the life cycle continues, the heads of wheat become more and more healthy, and what, what starts to happen inevitably is that the heads of grain start to outweigh the strength of the stalk that's holding it up and it begins to bow over and get heavy. This is the suspension phase. You know, David in midair realizing, oh my goodness, I've ascended so quickly in this position. I'm in the palace, everything is good, but whoa, I'm starting to get a little top heavy and things start to bow down. Well, then what happens as the life cycle continues is that the heads of grain become way too heavy even for the head of you know, whatever, that's holding this grain of wheat in. And and all of a sudden, it's time for the grain to fall to the ground. And the grain doesn't want to fall to the ground. The grain wants the glory days of midsummer when it was swaying in the breeze. That's what it wants to continue to feel. But that's not how it works. That's not the life cycle. It's got to continue. And so what's going to happen now in the next two chapters of David's life is that he's going to be upside down in the head of grain like this, trying to hold on for everything he has, not to fall out of the grain. And you can pray for the people that have to vacuum this up tomorrow. You know, David's about to drop. His world's about to fall out from under him. He's sprouted, he's grown, he's blown in the breeze, he's getting heavy, he's going to fall And he's going to fall out. And it's not going to be his fault. His character is yet impeccable. It's because this is what God is doing in his life. We come to chapter 19. And the tables begin to turn. Saul at this point wants David dead. And so Jonathan catches word. That Saul wants him dead. And so Jonathan informs David. He says hey your days here might be numbered. You go hide in the field. I'm going to bring my father. And we're going to have a conversation. That you can overhear eavesdrop. And you'll know. If, if you can come back safely to the palace or not. So David hides. Jonathan and Saul come out. They have a conversation. And Jonathan intercedes for David. He says, hey, he's done nothing wrong to you. He doesn't deserve to die. There's no reason that you should take him out. And Saul says, you know what? You're right. It was kind of foolish. I'm not going to do it. And he changes his mind. And David comes back into the palace. But he's only there for a little while. And sure enough, Saul, the spirit from God, the evil one, comes upon him again. He's incensed with jealousy, and he throws the spear at David again the second time, so much so that it sticks into the wall next to David, and David barely escapes out of his sight. And David runs. He realizes that the tide has turned. Things have changed, and that Saul wants him dead, absolutely. He goes home to his wife for a short span, but his wife says, you can't stay here. He's going to find you and he's going to kill you. I know my crazy father. And so she lets David out. She sneaks him out at night. Sure enough, Saul and his servants show up in the morning. They're looking for David. She lies and says he's sick in bed and delays him for a while. But eventually Saul says, go up and just kill him in his bed. So they go upstairs. They find out that she pulled the old Scooby-Doo trick where she put, you know, a fake, uh, you, you know, mold in the bed and that it wasn't actually David. And Saul turns on his daughter. And he says, if you conspired too, what's the deal here? And she lies. And she says, he told me he'd kill me if I didn't let him go. I did it because my life was in danger. Now, we don't know if she was just saving her own hide or if she really feared legitimately that Saul would really kill her. And it's possible he was going to kill Jonathan. We don't know. But David leaves there, and he flees now, and he goes to uh, um, uh, Samuel. I almost skipped a whole chapter and a half. Praise God that I caught that, you know. But he goes to Samuel at Ramah, and Samuel shields him for a season. Saul comes. You can read the, the, the story of what happens there. But God preserves him until David can escape again. So David now goes back. We're in chapter uh, 20 at this point, And David goes now to Jonathan, the son of Saul. And he says, Jonathan, what have I done? Why does your dad want me dead? And at this point, there's such a disconnect between Saul even and Jonathan that Jonathan says, what are you talking about? He doesn't want you dead. He would have told me. And David says, where have you been? Yeah, he wants me dead. And and, and Jonathan says, well, how are we going to figure out what's really going on here? So David and Jonathan hatch a plan. David says, hey, it's the new moon. It's the first of the month. And I'm going to be expected to have dinner with your dad for the first three days of this month. So here's what we'll do. I'm not going to show up. And you watch Saul's reaction when my seat is empty. And if he's angry and incensed that I'm not there, then you'll know for sure that he wants me dead. But if he says, oh, no big deal, David's not here, then I'll believe you that my life really is still safe and I can come back to the palace. And so they make a covenant, they agree together, and David says, well, how am I going to know? What will be the, the way that I'll know if, you know if I can come back or if I have to run? Jonathan says, you hide by the stone of Ezal, a famous stone, a monument in Israel. Hide there for three days. And I'm going to come out once I know, and I'm going to shoot three arrows. And if the arrows fly in front of you and land in front of the stone, then you'll know it's safe, that you can return. But if the arrows go beyond you and fly over your head, then you'll know that you need to depart and run because Saul seeks your life. So they make the agreement. Jonathan goes back home. The first night of the feast, the Bible says that Saul said nothing. He was silent. The second night, David's seat's still empty. Saul inquires. He says to Jonathan, he says, Hey, where's David, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite? Why isn't he here? And Jonathan says, Oh, well, he asked if he could go home to Bethlehem to a feast that his father was having to see his brothers. And I said, Sure, David, no problem. Go to Bethlehem. We'll see you next month. And Saul was so incensed, he called Jonathan names that in the King James Bible are almost humorous because of what they imply, but they don't actually come out and say. He says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, you know. And then he says, you've done this to the shame of your own nakedness and the nakedness of your mother. And then he says, as long as the son of Jesse lives, you will never be established in the throne. And Jonathan got angry, and he defended David. He said, what in the world has David done to you? And it says that Saul threw a spear at Jonathan and tried to kill him at that point, and he missed. Now, I tried so hard at this point in the study to have A picture of Saul missing for the fourth or fifth time. The far side where, you ever seen it? The caveman, he throws the spear and his friends go, air spear. It was going to be really funny. I couldn't find it. I tried, you know. (laughs) But Saul, obviously at this point, he's not a very good shot with the spear. He misses Jonathan again, but now Jonathan knows. He goes out to David on the third day. He finds him out in the field. The first arrow flies over David's head. Now put yourself for one moment in David's shoes. Your whole life is before you. You're still riding on the glory of Goliath's defeat. The people, they love you. They esteem you. You have their respect. You've been put in a position of prominence. In your mind, you can see you're on the rise. You're going somewhere. The plan of God is unfolding. But it all hangs in the balance right now. If the arrow lands in front, the plan, my purpose, it continues. But if the arrow should, could it? If the arrow would go over my head, then well, what would that mean? I mean... Could God, would would God? I mean, it's been so good. The plan's been so clear. It couldn't happen. And I can just feel the mental gymnastics that David for three days has to go through waiting to see what will happen with his life. The first arrow flies over his head. Oh, Jonathan, he, he's a prankster. He's, he's always doing stuff like this. I know that that was a good one. I know that the next arrow is actually, the next arrow flies over his head. And then the third. Then he hears the voice of Jonathan say to a young man, Go get the arrows and go inside. We're done shooting for today. Jonathan sneaks over to the place where David is. And he says, Surely, David, you better depart, for your life is in the balance. And it says that they embraced one another and they wept, but it says that David wept the more so, or until David exceeded, literally until he could weep no longer. The grain of wheat fell out of David's husk that day and there was a departure at the stone of Izal. the stone of his means the stone of departure what's the application of these chapters in this season of David's preparation and it's this is that every life in the Lord has a why God in John chapter 12 verses 24 and 25 Jesus said these words He said, most assuredly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain and he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And what has just happened to David is that his wheat grain, who he is, has just fallen out and fallen to the ground. No longer, David, is it just going to be about you. But the purpose of your life is going to grow. It's going to become much more than just being about you and you're swaying in the breeze. I'm going to make your life a blessing to others. But before I can do that, you must first die. There's a quote that's in my mind from a book that I read early on in my Christian life about this experience in David's life. The quote uh, was talking about David's anointing to be king. And the quote goes like this. It says that David was not chosen at that point or he did not come into the lineage of royalty but he came into the school of brokenness and that's exactly what david begins at this season of his life uh, the school of god's brokenness there is a departure that happens he has just departed from the plans that he has for himself he's departed from everything that's predictable from everything that's familiar to him from jonathan from samuel from his house his wife his family He's departed from everything that is known to him, everything that's comfortable, everything that is stable. He's lost now his reputation because everybody thinks he threatened to kill his wife. He's got no money. He's got no weapon. He's got no food. He is stripped and brought down to absolutely nothing and sent on his way with a have a nice life. That's the season that David finds himself in at the end of chapter 20. Well, in chapter 21, David becomes a fugitive. He knows he's going to be on the run. He's got nothing. He knows he's going to need food. He's going to need a weapon. And so he goes to Nob. And he goes to Ahimelech, the priest. And by this time, David has quite a reputation. So the priest at Nob is surprised that David is there and that David's alone. David lies to the priest. And he says, I'm here on the king's business. Have you got any bread and have you got a weapon? And the king gives David, I'm sorry, the priest gives David some of the showbread, which was not technically legal, but... On a technicality, he allows him to take it along with the sword of Goliath. And he's seen there by a servant of Saul, a man who was an Edomite named Doeg. And he's going to become pivotal a little bit later in the story. But David leaves from there. And then David does the stupidest thing that he'll ever do for the rest of... Well, no, the second stupidest thing that he'll ever do uh, for the rest of his life is that he goes to Gath, to the king of Gath, whose name was Achish. Now, wait a minute. Wait. He went to where? To Gath, a city of the Philistines, carrying the sword of Goliath, who was from Gath, the Philistine, amongst the people who were the Philistines, amongst whom David had been fighting as a captain over a thousand for the past however long. And there was not a family, a person, a mother, a father, a friend. In that area, who did not know who David was and who did not want David dead because they lost someone because of what David had done. And David decides, hey, I know the best place to go, Gaff. He gets there, he realizes that his reputation has gone before him. He immediately realizes the severity of the situation and he begins to act like he's insane. He'd had a great example of that with Saul for much time. And so he starts to purposely drool and spittle upon his beard. He starts to scratch at the doorposts and make animal sounds and and just act really, really crazy. So much so that Achish, the king of Gath, says, why have you brought him here? What, what, What do I have need of another crazy person for? Get him out. Now there's a lot of wisdom on David's behalf because no one would ever kill someone who was insane because they believed that insanity was demonic impression and that if you harmed someone like that, the demons would turn on you. So it was a move of self-preservation as David realizes the stupidity of his move and he moves quickly out of that scene. What are the lessons in this chapter? There's a couple of them very quickly and you can just jot them down and you can think through them uh, more on your own. But number one is this is that if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, your name is known in hell, and you can't go back to the world. Some people, when things happen in the Lord that they don't like, they take a hiatus and they say, I'm going to go to Philistine country. I'm going to go back into the world. It's not going to work. And if you've done it, you can say amen to that. Because you've got too much of the Lord to make it in the world, and it's not going to happen. You're known there. And Satan's going to have a heyday with you. The other thing is this. The other lesson in this chapter is that there is life after a mistake. This is a backslide for David. He shouldn't have done it. He makes a fool of himself. He ruins his own reputation and he ruins the reputation of Israel in the sight of the Philistines who were the very enemy of Israel. And yet God wasn't done with David just because he made a mistake and there was this season of backsliding within his life. He put his own life in danger, but God is not finished with him yet. He'll have to clean his beard. He'll have to pull the splinters out from under his fingernails. But God's not finished with David. And maybe you've been there. You've made a mistake. You've gone uh, a way that you shouldn't have. Um, There's another thing in this uh, chapter that I think is worthy of mentioning. And that's this. This is a real turning point for David. There's something that happens in David's life after this that becomes what what I'm going to call David's real rise to greatness. See, what happened back in the earlier chapters when he was quickly promoted through the ranks, that was the, the shot of the canon. But something happens here that's much more real. It's after leaving Gath that David writes Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. You can read those Psalms in the heading, which is inspired text. It says when those Psalms were written, and both of them were written after this experience. David learned something through this. You can read those uh, Psalms and pull out, um, you, you know, the implications and all that. But this is what happens in David's heart after this moment, is that David embraces the circumstances that he finds himself in. He understands that what he's going through is the Lord's will and that it's accomplishing the Lord's work within him. Now, the difference between David and most Christians in this point is that most Christians will kick against, fight and scream and rebel against these seasons of sufferings that God you know, brings us through from time to time to perfect and complete us. But David doesn't. He realizes at this point, no, this is God's will within, within my life and, and I can operate within the storm that I'm going through. And there's a secret. I'm going to tell you a secret. And then you know, we're going to close the study because the clock is uh, moving quickly tonight. It's not me, it's the clock, you know. But here's the lesson, is that the only way, or the secret rather, is that the only way out of a situation or a circumstance in the Christian life is to embrace the things that you're trying to get away from. That's the only way out. Now, we all have things that we hate about our lives. Things, circumstances, and we fight against them. We say, no, I'm not going to receive this. I I rebuke this circumstance or this sickness or this trial or this trouble or this poverty or this layoff. But no, embrace it. Embrace the suffering within your life because it's God's work to bring you to your expected end. And that's what David does. A surrendered heart will willingly embrace what comes, uh, no matter what it is, with faith and hope. David realizes here that there's no way out of this season of my life but to go through it. Well, we got almost through. We have two chapters left, but we're out of time. So we'll we'll make the proper adjustments um, in our study so that we can continue our flyover, but that you are not uh, tortured to listen to my voice anymore tonight. But the worship team can come at this time. There's a vital aspect in the life cycle of a wheat berry that without it, the wheat is basically useless. It's the separation of the wheat and the chaff. See, this wheat here, naturally grown in the ground, the wheat berry is in the head, and that's the only thing about this plant that serves any purpose at all. The rest of what this is, is what we would call chaff. And in order to bring out what's valuable in this, the chaff has to be separated. And the only way to separate it is that it would be, first of all, harvested, then it would be stomped, and then it would be thrown up into the air so that the waste, useless parts can be carried off in the breeze, and only what is substantial will remain and fall to the ground. The reason why that's necessary is, watch this. You see that? You see what's happening right there? You see that? Do you you see what's happening? It's making a mess. That's all I'm accomplishing right now, is making noise and making a mess. And here's the bottom line. Is that your life, apart from God's work being completed in it, to separate what is valuable from what is invaluable, from what is worthless, from what is worthwhile, is that he removed the chaff. Otherwise, We just make a mess. We make noise and we make mess. And the only way that God can accomplish that cause of separating the valuable from the invaluable is through the sufferings and the pain, the trials that we go through. And that's what we're seeing in David. So read ahead. Let's bow our hearts and pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for this excellent, excellent lesson that we have in this man, David. And all that he is to us, Lord. And all that we can learn. And as we consider, Lord, that you have something for us, a place and a plan within your house and within your kingdom, and you see what we only can be and what only you can make us, we would ask tonight, Father, that you would make us that perfect something. So have your way, O oh Lord, have your way. Let our hearts be laid before you. May you find in us a perfect submission, an absolute surrender, that there would be nothing we would withhold from you. We make it our prayer that tonight as your eyes scan this congregation Lord that you would see hearts that would be willing to trust in you completely and willing to let you have your way no matter what it is to do whatever you want to bring us where we're supposed to be. So may our lives be dedicated. May our eyes be fixed towards heaven. May our love for you be perfected. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.